1: Welcome to On the Continent, your one-stop podcast for all things European football. I'm Dotson Bayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Lauslie Watson. On today's edition, is the Bundesliga title race over at this halfway point, or is the thrill of a challenge still on the cards? And on the waterfront of Marseille, André Villas-Boas offers to jump ship as the walls of this Mediterranean Jericho crumble around him. And the transfer window brings to an end a fairy tale with possibly the deal of January. But first, let's talk about something that you've heard about, Andy, on the grapevine. Delhi Ali, PSG, what's going on?
2: That's right. Le Parisien this morning says that um, Delhi and um, PSG have come to an agreement on um, him making a move there. Um, Obviously, uh, Paris and Tottenham still have to to, to come to an agreement and you might say Daniel Levy's the tricky bit as he often is in these kind of deals. Um, But but it shows that it's it's on the right road. Um, It doesn't feel like a a planned long-term signing necessarily. I think there's a, a sense of try before you buy in it and I think there's a sense of it's just one of those January opportunities that needs to be taken it's an opportunity that needs to be taken by Delhi because he's banging his head against a brick wall again, a bit against Spurs um, from uh, the Tottenham perspective um, when they were batting off inquiries from Real Madrid a couple of years ago he's nowhere near at that value so they need him to be in a place where he can reinflate that value and for Paris Saint-Germain he's not only a player that Pochettino knows well but a, a, a player Lars that could fill a number of different gaps for them.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think uh if you look at the PSG squad you you obviously have the sort of the the, the fearsome duo of uh of Mbappe and Neymar. And, uh, and whether it's Icardi or Morse Ken who plays up with them, or if Di Maria's in there, whatever. But if you look at the midfield, it's a, it's all a little bit pedestrian. You know, you see Idris Agana-Gay, who's a great ball winner, but maybe doesn't move the ball so well. Ander Herrera, much of the same. You know, Paredes is in there. Danilo Pereira is there as well. So they have a lot of guys. I mean, weirdly, for a team that used to be very short on water carriers, they now have too many of them. And what can sometimes be an issue for them is moving it fluidly between midfield and attack, and I think Del Ali could possibly contribute with something there in terms of moving the ball forward, be it running with the ball or playing incisive forward passes. You know, if if, if Verratti is suspended or breaks down, and he's often one of the two, there's not a lot of guys in that midfield who are moving the ball forwards reliably and effectively. Now, I wonder sometimes Del Ali, I, I quite. I always thought he played some of his best football at Tottenham, almost as almost like a second striker. You know, making runs into the box and being a goal threat. But he is someone who, at his best, can move the ball very well as well. So you do see how he could potentially fit in, and it, it would be very interesting.
1: Let's move on to the Bundesliga because every football fan loves a two horse or a three horse or a four horse uh, title race. Well, not everyone, but certainly the neutral observers, perhaps. And of course, when the one team runs away with the league, we lose a certain amount of interest. And that has been, been been the problem for the Bundesliga for many a season. We were hoping this season was different, Andy, but it looks like business as usual now.
2: Yeah, and I, I don't think this past weekend it was so much about the inevitability of of, of Bayern going to Schalke and winning 4-0, or, or, although that obviously was a, a lasting impression of the weekend. The score flattered them a little bit, and those late goals with, by um, Müller and Alaba like, made the score a little bit harsher than it maybe should have been because um, Schalke gave a good account of themselves on the whole, I thought, um, caused Bayern a few problems, and that's something that maybe they they couldn't have done a few weeks ago uh, pre-Christian Gross. Um, but it was the fact that at the same time, uh, Leipzig, uh, Leverkusen and Dortmund all lost at the weekend. They're the three most likely challenges. Now, of course, Leverkusen always lose at home to Wolfsburg. We know that. Um, Leipzig's defeat at Mainz, who've had a terrible season so far and a lot of uh, chaos off the pitch, that was a, a real surprise. And Julian Nagelsmann was absolutely infuriated that they conceded a couple of goals from set pieces. But Dortmund took the biscuit because even though they played some good football away at Borussia Mönchengladbach back in the Friday night game, and particularly between Erling Haaland and uh, Jaden Sancho, um, they shot themselves in the foot, um, and especially in the second half, uh, defended quite badly. Um, they conceded three goals from set pieces, which was uh, one up from, from from what Leipzig did the the, the following day. And it, it, it's, it's just that sense of Bayern have had their difficulties, um, particularly at the back this season. Um, but the other teams have let themselves down at, at, in, in really sort of perplexing circumstances often um, in the scenarios that you'd least expect. I mean, I know we think of Borussia Mönchengladbach and, and, and Dortmund as a, as a huge game. Dortmund have won the last 12 competitive games between these two teams. And so that Dortmund managed to, Not just to lose, because that can happen, I think, against another good team in the Bundesliga, but really the manner in which they did it, that they shot themselves in the foot. There's a sense that we're almost having a bit of a rewind to the days of Carlo Ancelotti and Niko Kovac um, in charge of Bayern, where Bayern, even when they're at their strongest, maybe neutrals, Lars, feel that they're given a bit of an easy ride.
3: It's frustrating because Bayern, you can get at them this season. and, And the huge sort of thing... When Hansi Flick came in, the thing that made them this sort of all-conquering, you know, the best football team in the world, let's be honest, last year, was that they restored the high press. You know, they started pressing again after Nico Kovac felt they couldn't do it. And it turned out they could. <laughs> you, just, uh, you just had to tell them to and also play Thomas Miller. Uh, but but they were, they're were they not just, you know, a team of superstars. They're the team that press the most aggressively in, in the league and they don't let you settle. Um but as we know, and as we've seen in several leagues, uh, you can't. It's hard to play that way this season because it's so many games. Uh, you don't have the usual number of rest days between matches. You don't have the big winter break as you usually have. So just and it's very draining on the team's energy to play. I think the way Bayern would ideally like to play. So it's looked a little bit looser uh, this season. Now they kept a clean sheet against Schalke and at Augsburg uh, before. But before that, they had a run of, of like ten, eleven games or something. In the league going all the way back to October where they didn't keep a single clean sheet uh, so they don't strangle opponents in quite the same way that we're used to seeing them do they can be got at and I think there are even personnel issues defensively with Nicolas Sula who you know has his detractors and and David Alaba who's who's on his way and um you know they, they look more vulnerable than we're used to 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 seeing them and, and there was there was this fair when everything fell into place last season under Hansi Flick that, oh my God, they're just going to be amazing forever now, but they haven't been this season at all. And what I thought was interesting about this weekend was that there were two challengers who failed in very predictable ways, and, and one that failed in a completely new and spectacular way, uh, <laughs> by, by which I mean the The Dortmund defeat was so typical of Dortmund in the sort of late Lucien Favre era and and lately Dortmund in that you have two really good goals, great work from Jaden Sancho, good finishes from my boy allen Holland um but they're just so like defensively not very good and and it's so typical for this Dortmund team that you have incredible talent and incredible youth who are so exciting going forward but you just can't rely on them and guys like Hummels and Emre, Emre Chan, and the guys who should be the mature leaders Buki as well is, is a big character but someone who hasn't mistaken them they're just not reliable and they're not the young uh, stars are not getting the support that they need from the more established figures there whereas Leverkusen like you say of course they always lose to Wolfsburg and I think that makes perfect sense especially under Oliver Glasner like, you know in the in the land of the blind you know the one-eyed man Man is king. Well, I I'd put it to you <laughs> that in the land of the Bundesliga, a team that can actually defend will usually do quite well. Because, uh, you know, I, I do love the Bundesliga. But you do watch the games there, and there's a lot of times you go, hang on, where's the fullback gone? Like, where's where, where's the center half over there? Like, there's a lot of loopy defending going on in this league, whereas Wolfsburg actually keep their shape really well and seem like they know where to stand, and the distances are very good. So they're not in a spectacular team. that They don't have a lot of stars, uh, but they're fourth in the league with the same number of points as Leverkusen, which is impressive. Now, they're the opposite of Leverkusen. You know, Peter Bosch's freewheeling Leverkusen, you know. This sort of rigorous positional stuff that's a very bad opponent for them. But what I'm getting at is that my my biggest disappointment, like you, you kind of expect Leverkusen to come unstuck in this sort of game. You're not surprised, sadly, at this point, to see Dortmund have that kind of a misfortune. But Leipzig just being bad against Mainz, that was weird. Like I did not see that coming at all, Andy. Um, Julian Nagelsmann rightly angry. This is not a game they, they can lose for a team in their position. What's happening?
2: No, you're, you're right. And um, I think you look at teams struggling to produce the, the, the same intensity again and again. Uh, that, that was a really good example of that. I thought they were pretty flat. And Nagel's man had a a sense of this does not compute afterwards either. Um, the fact that they let Musa Niakate sort of swan in and sc- score two goals from set pieces when he never scores to the extent where he employed a, a swift handshake uh, to celebrate his first goal with a, a, a series of, of teammates. The fact that um, Mainz were a little bit smarter, uh, the, the fact that um, Nagelsmann's changes didn't really impact on, on the game at, at any stage. Um, I mean, I, I think there are, there are a few issues here. Um, firstly, Leipzig... I I don't know. I've never really felt that they're quite ready to challenge yet. And you look at the second half, they played against Dortmund and that was a a case in point where Dortmund were far better than them a couple of weeks ago. Of course, for Dortmund fans, this might have been the moment where they thought, oh, this is all going to click because I think that there are layers of problems there. And it's, you know, it's, it's not just all about the experienced players. I think at the back they're simply just short of numbers. Um, they're a centre half short at the start of the season, and um, they are again now because Manuela Kanji. I don't think he's ever going to develop into the centre back they want. And I think he's really the weak link in 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 the defence. Uh, Thomas is has has not not adapted very well. And you think, you know, Tursic even chose to pick Mato Amori uh, uh, ahead of him. Um, last weekend although Mounier's carrying an injury at the, 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 the moment he's been very very disappointed and they're paying him enormous wages but I think you look at the second half of that and you talked about Lucien Favre there and the, the errors of his time I think what's most difficult for Terzic and um, you know it's, it's, the last week where they lost to Leverkusen and uh, to and Gladbach, two immediate competitors is pretty much written off the chance of Terzic getting the job full time but I feel a little bit sorry for him because, of course, he's got very different ideas to Lucien Favre. But the team that was playing, particularly second half, with so little pressure on, on the ball, so little pressure on the grab-back players, how are they able to change from what Favre has been getting them to do for the last two and a half years in, what, a, a week? Is, is, is that how long, really, without a game that Tursic has had to work with them? He's He's got no real time I mean, I think it's complicated for someone like him to take over mid-season anyway and to instill a, a different sort of regimen in, in, into the team. But like, especially with the truncated winter break that you had in, in, in Germany this season, I, I think it's virtually impossible. It's one thing for
1: one of four title contenders to, to lose a match. You know, like you say, is it to Leverkusen that always lose against Wolfsburg? Okay, fair enough. It's another thing for two title contenders. But then when you get three in a row and it becomes something of a pattern, looking at it from the outside, you you wonder if this isn't a case of um, the, the 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 chasing pack because it will always be by a Munich that you're chasing at some point or another in the Bundesliga. Yeah. The chasing pack aren't bottling it. You know, that great book by Matthew Saeed, uh called Bounce about when sports people, and I'm not talking about... The club itself, I'm not talking about the coach, I'm not talking about the tactics, but when the players themselves start bottling it and there's a little bit of sort of uh, energy zapped from their legs when they face the opponents in an important game where they need to sort of... uh, keep in touch with the, the 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 main contender as it were last year do you, do you see where I'm going with that is, is there any sense of the other teams here bustling it at a crucial point
3: I think you can make a strong case for that happening to Dortmund not last season but the season before when they were in a great position and they lost some key games in the spring and and they really didn't show up for them uh, and I, I think for that, but but right now, I think there are just footballing reasons why these teams aren't that good. I, I think Andy is completely right about the, like the defense of Dortmund is just not looking... Like I said, Akanji has been an ongoing disappointment, but also like uh, Mats Hummels at this age... Are you super comfortable playing him in a back four? You know, maybe uh, there's a reason Favre uh, as one of a three where he's got two centre-halves next to him helping him out. But, you know, Hummels offers you a lot, but he offers he has certain limitations as well. Um, I, I, just footballing-wise, there's reasons why this Dortmund team isn't quite where it needs to be. Whereas I do wonder if a Peter Bosch team will ever be consistent enough to win uh, a title here. Um because they always have that sort of defeat in them. And Leipzig, I think Andy is, is spot on about maybe they're not quite ready and maybe they need to mature as a team in the sense that, and I think Danny Olmo has a big part to play there, of, of being a team that's not just all action and all running and can be a little bit more patient on the ball and, and take the sting out of things. I completely get what you're saying, and I think there have been years where the mentality issue has has been there and been part of why the the chasing pack are struggling with Bayern. But but this year I just think these are teams that are slightly dysfunctional in various ways. And yeah. I think it's especially frustrating for Dortmund because uh, they're not going to have uh, two sort of emerging global superstars like Jadon Sancho and Alan Holland in their team that often, <laughs> you know, for a team with their resources there's over, there's a slightly higher tier of club in the world with slightly more money, maybe slightly more prestige. Who's always going to come around and 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 pick up those players if they happen if they happen to get them, Dortmund, and and they have them together this year, which is exciting. And it's a shame that the uh, supporting cast is not is not is not really there in terms of backing them up to the point where they can uh, have a, have a run at the title.
2: I just wonder if we're going back to the old thing again of waiting for a buy and slip. I mean, Lars is right when he said they looked completely impregnable at the time they won the the, the Champions League, and clearly, football as it is, Dotton, and the world as it is, has been or, or should have been a kind of leveler. Really, um, the demands on on buying the same as 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 everyone else has has been tough. Um, but I wonder if, if, if the answer does come from within Bayern because there's been quite a, a lot of chat this week um, of maybe Hansi Flick, despite him having a contract that goes for a few more years, n- not carrying on next season at a, a, a Bayern um, because um, he might take over from Jogi Löw um, as, as as the Germany coach. Of course, he's, he's, he's had a huge role with Germany in the past and because... Um, he's not had an entirely frictionless relationship with Hassan Salihamazic, the, the sporting director, particularly over transfers. And, you know, that will come up again, A, with the the exit of Alaba and B, perhaps with the exit to come of Jerome Boateng, who's who's not got a new contract for for, for next season yet. I, I think it, it does go back to the same old things. Like, it, can Bayern continue this 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 flick reign? And the other thing is, as Lars was saying, where Dortmund are next season. And I know we're leap into next season already. I think to an extent we have to accept that and leap ahead to next season already. Um, are they able to hold on to? I don't think they'll hold on to both Holland and Sancho, but can they hold on to one? Who will probably be Erling Holland. Mm. If they can, I think that's an enormous help. To them and of course getting the right coach is going to be important as well because it won't be Tursic
1: Lash will they hold on to Haaland you're the person who's got him yeah I think my
3: my understanding is that he's happy where he is now and there's no plans to, to move on as things stand but I do think if they miss out on the Champions League <laughs> that that's bad and it becomes an issue of of, um, of convincing him as Andy's pointed out before, convincing him that they're moving in the right direction and they can build a team here that's, uh, that's right for him to be. But I think it's important to remember uh, him and the people around him, they've always been very, very focused on his development. Uh, the, uh, when they, they first moved abroad from Molde, from Norway, they, they went to Ar- RB Salzburg in, in Austria, in spite of having offers from, from bigger clubs and, and financially better offers, uh, because they felt being in Austria with Salzburg was the best place for him to be in terms of his development and him progressing. And when they moved to Dortmund, uh, I'm sure financially the offer was very good, uh, but I'm also quite certain they could have gotten more money somewhere else at that time. Uh, It isn't always about the money with him uh, because the money will come and there'll there'll be no shortage of money for him and his family in the future. So they're really, really focused on him being in the right environment to to develop as a player and to be successful. And that is Dortmund for now. And I I, I suspect it probably will be Dortmund for next season as well. But if they miss out on the Champions League, which financially would be really bad for the club, uh, especially since getting transfer fees for their players is harder now in this market than if that impacts their ability to put together a competitive team um it becomes a challenge in terms of convincing him to stay but i think for now that's what's likely to happen <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: This week at Sukarnov. On WrestleMe this week, we talked
0: about the worst way to accept a Hall of Fame award. They were just talking, you suck it. You suck and
1: then he pours milk over himself. <laughs> <laughs> Pouring <laughs> milk over What is head.
2: this? <laughs> Pouring milk over yourself is absolutely something that, if you did it once in any scenario, people would never forget <laughs> it. We were just having Christmas dinner and, and like, you know, he just poured <laughs> two litres of milk over himself.
0: Or if you're more in the mood for some awkward anecdotes, Alex shared his experience with the cast of events. Horizon. On this week's Clash of the Titles, we meet Smitty,
3: played by Sean Pertwee, a man who I bumped into in a bar, having never interviewed, and literally chewed his ear off, trapped him in a corner of a booth where he couldn't actually
2: stand up and get away from me and talk to him incessantly about this film. Later on in the night, his wife said to me, "Sean's outside. If you want to carry on talking to him about Event Horizon,
0: (laughs) (laughs) all that and more."
2: At
1: so let's turn now to the home of the Marseillaise, if you like, one of the most beautiful cities in France, if not the second most beautiful. I'll leave that up to you. But can we start <laughs> off with a quiz? Uh, Lash first. Who was it that said being in the um, the stadium of Olympic Marseille and hearing the crowd roar was like being at a rave when the bass hits you in the chest. You know, when it really hits you, and you in the chest and you feel it. Who was it that said that? That sounds like an Andy Brasselism to me. <laughs> <laughs> Your starter for 10. Andy Brassel, who was it that said that?
2: Yeah, it was me. <laughs> the, the thing is, at the start of the phrase, I was thinking... I'm going to go for Gerard Depardieu when he was recording the um, the, the the series Marseille. But then, when you got to the rave bit, I thought, no, that's not Depardieu's bag.
3: I was just thinking Andy is the one that springs to mind who's comfortable both at the velodrome and at a rave. <laughs> well, well done
1: and well sussed up. But we're we're experiencing obviously uh, Marseille without that crowd thumping away and leading a chorus of support. Yeah, we're moving on is to ABB. Why,
3: Increasingly not comfortable either at the velodrome or at a Well, rave. yes.
1: So <laughs> is that why everything seems to be crumbling around him there? I'm
3: saying, yeah, I, I think the absence of... It's hard to quantify this, but I think it's very, very a very plausible theory to say that Marseille are one of the clubs that certainly suffer with the absence of fans and the absence of the spectacle around the games and I'll I'll give you one example I think Dimitri Payet has a different season if there are fans in the stadium I think he's what he's a showman you know he likes to he likes to play to the crowd and he's not um had his best season to put it very very mildly and he's um Increasingly, there are reports that uh, this town isn't big enough for both him and Tova, and that's you know metaphorically, but maybe also physically. Looking at Dimitri Payet at the moment, uh, the, he's 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 a, he's a little bit bigger than he ideally should be. So uh, I, I think he is someone who who maybe thrives off of that energy. And I think when Marseille go about their business when they sign players, they do keep it in mind that. That they know what they are. They know what the club is, and they know what playing for Marseille means. And it means, you know, being comfortable and and, and capable and and, uh, and of enjoying that sort of carnival atmosphere. And you're bringing someone like Dario Benedetto up front from Boca, who's uh, familiar with a bit of a lively atmosphere to to lead the line up front. And you'll notice there aren't that many young players in this team compared to other clubs in France who who tend to skew younger with their recruitment and looking to make money from selling them on at, at Marseille there's more of a case that you need to be more experienced and a bit tougher because you got to deal with what comes with playing for Marseille and this season what comes with playing for Marseille has been you know slightly different things than what it usually does so I, I think for sure you're onto something there Don.
2: It's, it's funny isn't it how um, you know some, some players just completely crumble anyway at uh, uh, Marseille un, un, under the pressure I think it's interesting that some of the more adept ones at dealing with it are the players like... You could compare it a bit like Julian Draxler at Schalke, really. You're in this unique atmosphere, and if you've grown up with it, you get it a little bit more. And I think if you look at some of the players that have... Sean for 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 Marseille in, in recent years of course Payet he would say it's is is his town anyway mm. it's his city but um Boubacar Kamara is, is someone who's been absolutely vital to them it was one of AVB's early gambles to move him from defense into midfield and as a holder he was absolutely vital to them um last season and and, and then finishing second but i do wonder moving away from the players a bit, and we'll come back to the, the Tovan Payet argument in in a minute because, well, because it's key, but also because it's quite amusing. <laughs> I, I think the, the, the village boers thing is interesting because I think crowd or no crowd, atmosphere or no atmosphere, um, vibe of the city or not, village boers was always going to find something to implode over because he is someone who is sporadically an excellent coach and he has proved that at other clubs before but he's also someone who is quite a restless character Mm. who's quite an impatient character who's quite an impetuous character and I feel this all feeds into what's happening at Marseille at the moment I mean you know they're on a run of three successive defeats at the moment. He actually offered his resignation after the first of those um, at home to Nîmes, and um, you know the combustible fans of of course who can't make their presence felt and their feelings felt in the stadium at the moment. And I think this has quite uh, an influence: the fact that fans are out of the stadium in all different places, on their that the, the tone of their expression about their teams because. Because you can't make the way you feel apparent in the stadium, you have to make it apparent online and through fan club statements. And you had a couple of the fans, uh, fan groups coming out and, and, and telling the players they're a disgrace after losing to Nîmes. That's before they went on and lost at home to Lens and then lost at a, a Monaco last weekend. But I kind of think Vilish Boas himself planted the seeds for this discontent. Uh, 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 Autumn, really, because of the way that it went so badly in the Champions League. That hurt his pride very badly, I think. You know, people were talking about it being the continuation of Marseille's previous bad form in the Champions League, which, of course, they hadn't been in for six or seven years. And they were going on this record um, uh, run of defeats in the Champions League. And he quite rightly said, well, the start of that's nothing to do with me. And it's nothing to do with those current players, apart from Dimitri Payet, who was there the (laughs) first time. But I think the way that he reacted to that, and he said, you know, there was that famous quote, wasn't he, that everyone found very amusing about, uh, well, you know, to be shit in the Champions League, you have to get there first. We got there and now we're being shit there. Yeah. If, if you're the players here in that and, you know, you've got your coach saying, well, we're just not of, we're not of a sufficient level. I think you've got to be able as a coach to contain your frustration a little better than that.
1: So when he tendered his resignation, what was the response? No, carry on that's unusual Lush, isn't it um, um, most people most boards well, well, nowadays say yeah, you well, gotta, okay you want to go let's go
3: but you got to bear in mind though the dynamics here which is that he kind of wanted to leave after last season <laughs> and uh, and had to be exactly. pers- and had to be persuaded to come back in part by the players apparently who, who asked him to stay um, but, but yeah, yeah them qualifying I think this is something that's worth Bearing in mind a bit when we're talking about how this is a big club, uh, culturally, uh, and in terms of their meaning in a, in a big football city where a lot of people care about football and a lot of people care about what they do, when they finish second in the league, I wonder if the temptation is to think, oh, well, we're back now, we're good, we're fine, we're going to be good, Marseille are going to be good. And you're kind of forgetting the fact that they did overperform quite dramatically to finish second. I think if you look at the underlying numbers, they were not the second best team in France last year. If you look at how many, you know, chances generated and expected goals and all of this, they were quite jammy finishing second. And and <laughs> when uh, Viasproas then loses uh, Andoni Zubizarreta, the sporting director who, you know, was there was his ally there, he, he leaves the club and he thinks we, we we've already done slightly better than expected. And I've lost uh, a key ally at the club. Uh, this might be a time, couldn't, not a bad time to move on. Uh, but, but then he becomes persuaded to stay, wants to try to play in the Champions League with this team. That doesn't work out at all. His form then collapse, collapses in the league. You can see why he might feel, it's not not, not a lot f- for me to stay here, really. This is, maybe I should just go.
2: And it's interesting how Pablo Longoria, the, the, the sporting director, who's quite a junior um, guy to be a sporting director, he starts the job and he's a little bit in awe of AVB. You mm-hmm. know, he loves him. Um, he wants to please him. But now he's far more on the page of, right, I, the, the, I I want to do what's right for the club. And he's making his own moves. And he's only going to be emboldened by the fact that he's signed Arcadia's Milik, which was a, a complicated deal. But they've been looking for what they call... The, um, locally, the Le grand attaquant. I've heard this, the, 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 the grand attaquant. The, yeah, the, the great, the great strike is one word in Marseille. And they've, they've, been, they've been looking for it for a, for a long time, and now they've finally got a guy who's got respect in European circles who wants to come and be their centre-forward, which, which is a big deal. Um, but if you're Milik, and you've arrived into this situation, and, you know, it, Marseille is such a combustible atmosphere that you can kind of understand it. You must be thinking, if you're Milik, what have I walked into? Because we talked about this row that's been reported between Tovan and Dimitri Payet. Now, Payet sort of uh, signed this extended contract with the club last season, when he was the one who was most resistant to wage cuts um, post-pandemic. He signed this extended contract, and it's, right, well, I'm going to take less money, but over a... a a greater period of time so he's taking 50% less salary going forward um but he's he's contracted for longer and part of the deal is a reconversion to sporting uh, not sporting director but um a a, a job on the board at the club when it when he retires and um Apparently Tovan's main complaint is, well, you did that behind your back. You made it look as if you're Marseille for life and you know, the, the, the ultimate servant to the club, where basically you've just feathered your own nest. Now to be called out by that like that by the other star of the team, I reckon stings a bit. And also a guy in Tovar who's given a lot to Marseille, but is also out of contract at the end of the season and is going to walk for nothing and has refused all efforts from the club to move him and get a bit of money for him while they still can.
1: How's Marseille going to turn things around? How's AVB going to turn things around? I think he's got, or at least the board have got themselves into a situation now, because once the coach is more, um, or is indispensable from the board's point of view, he's he's got a powerful, uh, he's sitting in a powerful position. But then I don't know how that translates into... How we salvage this team where the walls are crumbling around them?
3: Well, I, yeah, I, I think you have. A, when you have a manager who's like, I, 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 "You can sack me, that's fine, I don't care," that's not really a good start in terms of turning around a bad run of form. And you do wonder if, you know, the players who felt very, very strongly about him staying, uh, if they would feel equally strongly about him staying now. I'm not sure about that. And, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like a very, very good situation. But but they have brought in Milik. And I think for a team that, uh, you know, that hasn't scored a ton of goals this season, bringing in a new striker is exciting, you know. So uh, maybe he can have a sort of galvanizing effect on it. And, uh, I mean, he like you say, Andy, he is a good coach, VS And Marseille are like a notoriously difficult team to, to be in charge of. It's not like you can go out and, and get whoever you want to come there and whoever you... Mm whoever you might get might not get the club and be able to get the players to, to pull together and all this sort of stuff so you know um, I, I I would be a little bit surprised if they sort of suddenly went on a barnstorming run and cruised into a Champions League spot in the second half of the season But but weirder things have happened I suppose.
1: Andy, most important question of this conversation to you. So, when, when, when this, uh, when all the pandemic restrictions are over, where would you rather be, at a rave
2: or at the velodrome? Who's to say I can't be at a rave at the velodrome? <laughs> Boom! <laughs>
1: Is the right answer. <laughs> Finally, let's talk about, well, not finally, because we'll come on to your games of the week as well. Um, Looking forward to those, one from each of you. But before that, uh, the January transfer window is coming to an end. Not a lot of business has been done, at least not a lot of high profile business has been done. But there is one move
2: that brings to an end a fairy tale, Andy. It's kind of heartbreaking, but exciting at the same time. Um, Ever since we've Knowing that Papa Gomez has has, has been leaving Atalanta, it's it's been really hard to visualise where he would go because it just seems such a perfect union between player and club. He was a huge part of them um, becoming um, established in in the in the Big Four in Italy, and and they are that now. And you know, you saw them go and win a, a Milan last weekend, and they played brilliantly and I, I just felt in that game which of course didn't involve Papu Gomez this is a sense of how far Atalanta had come that I, I didn't feel that um, Milan were, were absolutely awful I just felt that they caught Atalanta on one of those days when they can take any team apart and, and you feel that they can do that to, to good teams nowadays and um, you know of course a lot of that goes um, the, a lot of the credit to that goes for um, Gian Piero Gasparini And him in the start of winter falling out with um, Papa Gomez, then that escalating to a dispute between Gomez and um, the president. Um, I I think neutrals felt that they'd lucked out when um, he didn't want to go to the, the, the Middle East when he was offered a move there last summer. But it turned out he wasn't much longer for Atalanta. But of all the moves that he could have got, I feel that him going to Sevilla is super, super exciting. Not just because they're maybe missing a player like that, because I think a lot of teams are missing a player like that. But you did think when he was put on the market, his wages, his age being 32 for an attacking player, these were all things that maybe counted against him and maybe sort of tightened the field. But if you're going to get a team... Who are gonna find a way to do a deal that looks tricky. Maybe Sevilla and maybe are that team last?
3: Yeah, for sure. But I like how this is uh Um Well, I'm very hesitant to ever say, Oh, it's a great signing. Well, we don't really know yet, but it's an exciting signing. And I like how it shows you can if you're Sevilla and you're the you're that sort of bracket of club. Um, sort of slightly behind the very top ones. What you're very often doing is is assigning potential, and this is what Monchi is so good at: is finding someone who plays in League Two, or you know, someone's an unpolished gem that Sevilla can get good service out of for two, three years, and then sell to the Premier League for a ton of money. You know, this seems to be what generally happens, and this is the kind of thing that makes us, you know, praise Monchi for being a genius. But but actually, the sort of good squad building can sometimes be about seeing. Here's a 32-year-old who still has a lot of really good football in his legs and who we can bring in uh, for for a fee and for wages. But you know what? At the end of the day, the, the race for top four spots is going to be pretty pretty tight in the league of the season from the way it looks with, with Villarreal looking very decent, with Real Sociedad being there and thereabouts. So having someone like Papu Gomez in the team can be the difference between fourth and fifth. And if you do that, then you've then that move is paid for itself and then some.
2: Yeah, I do wonder if this had happened maybe a month ago, maybe we'd be talking about the title picture a little bit differently. Because we've been saying all season, or certainly at the start of the season, how what would stop Sevilla making a proper run at La Liga when in, in a season where... Um, Real Madrid and Barcelona are in a state of flux. Uh, we didn't really know what we are going to get from Atletico at the, the the beginning. The feeling that they were really missing a centre-forward. Now, over the last month and a half, Yusuf and Nezri has started banging yeah. them in left, right and centre to the extent that West Ham have thought, he's had a good month, let's try and buy him. <laughs> but is the joint top scorer in La Liga at the moment, I think we have to respect that, whether a good run of form becomes... A consistently excellent player is 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 a different question, but in in terms of that, not just creative fulcrum, but in terms of that leadership on the pitch, you know maybe that's something someone to map the game out. Maybe that's what they've missed as as, as well. I mean, we know defensively they're excellent. Um, Bono has become the first choice goalkeeper off the, the the back of some brilliant performances at the end of last season, especially in the Europa League. Um, but I wondered, you know, you had this. Um, video to welcome him to Sevilla talking about him being um the the greatest uh, the the latest sorry in a string of great Argentinians to have played at Sevilla and you've got all the ones from the past obviously led by um Eva Banega and it, it was it was set I think to the sort of choral music you normally have in a horror film when a church is burning down you know something to give it that sort of gravitas and um and then you you see benega and you see papu afterwards and you think okay okay now we're talking because the fact that benega went at the end of last season and did it in brilliant style and typical style by winning the europa league you think they have kind of missed that player now the ivan raketic signing was um i think a, a, a self-conscious effort to 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 plug that gap not just in in terms of his qualities but in terms of his um status at the club having having been fantastic for them before um marrying a local woman being part of the culture all that sort of stuff um and the fact that he said he was going to take the number 10 shirt in tribute to his his, his old mate the late great uh, Jose Antonio Reyes but Rakitic has really struggled this season mm. he's, he's he's not been great at all um actually when they beat um Valencia in the the, the Copa del Rey um this this week uh, Rakitic scored the third goal it's a fantastic chip and the headline in um, in uh, Estadio Deportivo, which is the, the sports paper of Seville, said um, Papu Gomez gives Rakitic new batteries with the idea being that the arrival of, of Papu Gomez, and yes, I think they can play in the same team together and we know they can because Rakitic can take up so many different positions and that's part of the reasons why he's been such a valuable player for um, Sevilla and Barcelona over the years. Um, but the, the idea that Papu arriving is saying to Rakitic look if you want to lead the team you're really going to have to lead the team and Rakitic didn't only score this fantastic goal and he kind of attributed the chip to um, Silva the goalkeeping coach who, who provides them with reports of all the goalkeepers they're going to face and he was like well th- this guy's going to be off the line a bit so maybe you want to have a go but his all-round game Rakitic was absolutely fantastic and it did feel that this is a moment maybe where he had to focus a little bit more
1: I have got a fairy tale ending question for you in just a moment Andy but I don't know Lash if you want to uh, come back on what Andy said you wanted to add something in
3: yeah just to say that I think you mentioned Rakitic of course and he used to be a a, a, a typical, a more a more typical number ten, but he's been such mm. a. He's had to adapt to Barcelona and become almost like a water carrier for them, to 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 find his place in that team. And and I think him coming into Sevilla, yeah, he's taking the number ten shirt, but he's not doing, he's not contributing as much going forward as Banega was. Banega was actually sort of very very good at not just pulling the strings in midfield, but also popping up around the area. And yeah. and, and, I, and I think adding someone like Papa Gomez, who gives them a little bit more incision. Up front, I think is 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 makes a lot of sense. Pablo Gomez is so much fun because he's uh, you can tell so his tactical development. You can really see it when he plays. You know, he he played uh, as sort of a second striker when he was very young back in Argentina. Uh, but Diego Simeone told him, "Listen, you're you're going to go to Europe at some point, and because you're so small, they're going to stick you out wide. Uh, so I'm going to play you out wide." And, and he initially didn't like it at all because he d- doesn't want to run that much and he doesn't want to defend and he d- didn't like it. But he, he did get used to it. And in the end, he, when he ended up going to Europe, he was also then coached by Diego Simeone in Europe. Uh, so he was played out wide. But you can definitely tell that he plays... As someone who has the spatial awareness and the intelligence of someone who is probably a natural number 10 in terms of what he does, but who's played a lot of out wide in his career. So he's very happy to drift into wide areas and look for spaces there. And and, and he gave this great interviews with with El Pais not too long ago, the Spanish newspaper, where he said one of the things he does to find space on the field is to look at where the ref is. Because the, because, the, because the referee always positions himself to have the best view and to see everything that's going on, and so he's actually made it a point of principle that in a lot of games he'll, he'll sort of hang around in the areas where the referee takes up, because the referee's always in very clever positions, which I think is extraordinary. I've never seen anyone who's
1: really clever when you think about it. He's giving it away now. Everybody will be doing it soon. But Andy, why did the fairy tale end for Gomez in
2: Atalanta? Um, b- because of the fallout with Gasparini, really, and um, it, it just wasn't solvable. What was that, uh, like about, what was that it, about, It was it, it was it was about him not following tactical instructions. Uh, so Hulín uh, Lopetegui, who's rehabilitated himself as a coach, is going to get someone who's a senior professional with a strong mind, which is going to be another thing for him to to have to deal with. I, I feel pretty. Confident that Papu Gomez will be a success at, at Sevilla, but I think for Lopetegui to regard it with a little bit of caution and circumspection is probably no bad thing. Although Papu has said now he's left Atalanta, he always said when he when he left Atalanta he would come out and tell the truth of what really had been happened. So you know maybe we should expect the first book by the end of the season.
1: There's no there's no truth in fairy tales, mate. It's all fantasy. <laughs> Remember that. <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, um, I do think uh, Gasparini has expanded a little bit uh, because Papu Gomez at Atlanta almost had his own role that doesn't really exist. They, they, what they call him, Andy? A tutto campista, uh, someone who plays everywhere, uh, basically. Uh, and it was almost as if the team would adapt to where he is. Like, he was allowed to go looking for the ball. He was allowed to drop deep if he felt that's what he wanted to do. He was allowed to, I guess, follow the referee around if that's what he wants to do. Like, I mean, he, he, he had freedom of the pitch m- most games. But, of course, this season, we saw it last autumn... And yeah, the year before, the first time they were in the Champions League, the Atalanta was struggling with the extra workload uh, of playing both Champions League group stage games and also playing in Serie A. They really struggled in that period. We saw that a bit this autumn. And they're definitely one of the teams that have had to adapt the way they play because of the pandemic and because of the extra workload. And one of the things, I think Gasparini has suggested that actually now it's hard for the team to compensate in the way they previously were able to for the fact that you have Papu Gomez kinda of running around uh, doing his own thing and that's part of his thinking and wanting slightly different stuff, which I suppose makes sense, but it is, as you say, it is an interesting challenge full of Pategui now, who who who's always been revered as a very good coach and someone who works really well with players, and we'll see how that goes.
1: So is that time for you both to recommend a unmissable game for us to watch this weekend um andy do you want to start by doing the honors
2: uh yeah um i'm gonna go friday night i feel like i've had a few friday nights recently um but i, th- I think this this is fair enough i'm gonna go for lyon versus bordeaux uh the battle of the bourgeois in in in, in france and um you, you uh, might obviously- want to
1: explain that battle of the bourgeois
2: yeah, because these are the two most uh, commonly recognised as the two most bourgeois cities in France. There's a degree of friction between the two over uh, which is the the, the the most refined. But really, it's, it's following on the interest of this game um, from uh, Lyon uh, trying to stay in the the, the title hunt. They won uh, four uh, five nil sorry at Saint Etienne uh, last weekend against a very diminished Saint Etienne who had a lot of players out with. Um, Coronavirus, but that didn't stop Lyon celebrating wildly. But the reason I've I've gone after this is because it's the latest return of Atem Ben Arfa to to Lyon, and um, of course he nearly re-signed for Lyon twice, uh, once in 2016 and then again in 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 2018. I do wonder how different is. The back end of his career would have been if he'd have re-signed for Lyon in, in 2016 rather than uh, going to Paris Saint-Germain. He eventually did. He thought he was going to sign for Sevilla. But 10 minutes before, um, he got the call to see if he wanted to go back to Paris and and, and sign for sign for his, his his home city club. But, of course, the reason that fell apart is because... Jean, well, one of the reasons that fell apart is when they were negotiating Leon with um, Ben Arthur, the president, Jean-Michel Olas, was asked about it in a press conference and he lifted his phone to show a text message he had from Atem Ben Arthur. And at that point, they thought, no, 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 no we, we can't work with this guy. So even though Bordeaux have been quite ordinary this season, I wouldn't put it past Ben Arthur to produce something spectacular going back to Leon,
1: Do you want to declare an interest?
2: well I do most weeks so there's no real need for me to do it again is there <laughs>
1: <laughs> you've lived in Lyon that's all I'm saying
2: and I had a lovely weekend in Bordeaux
1: <laughs> what happens in Bordeaux over weekend stays in Bordeaux you know that Large, if you can even remember it <laughs> 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 that Listen. was a Norwegian aside by the way we nearly <laughs> lost it yeah, yeah, Norwegians you abroad you know week?
3: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's only one way, for, one way, place for me to go, and that is to, uh, to Leipzig versus Bayern Leverkusen. Uh, Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, apologies. Um, and I think we, we've spoken about them today. The sort of um, the also runs in Germany. The disappointing also runs here. Two of them face off together. It should be a fun game. I'm interested in seeing if Leipzig can bounce back from that atrocity against Mainz, uh, which they will want to forget in a hurry. Uh, or not, I guess, if you want to learn lessons from it. Uh, but that was very, very poor uh, against Leverkusen. These are two sides who both like to push high up the field. Uh, the, no one will be sitting back here. I expect both will be would be trying to play attacking football. It should be fun. It's also a tale of two strikers. Uh, and I and I very much appreciate your good grace, Andy, for never bringing it up so far this season. Uh, but uh, the, the, <laughs> the the Viking King, Alexander Sörlott. Has not been a success at RB Leipzig so far. There's there, there are two very tall, blonde Norwegians in the Bundesliga, and one is very much doing better than the other. Uh, after moving to Leipzig from Trabzonspor, where he was very, very successful, Alexander Solas has only scored once in, in six starts and ten off the bench for Leipzig. Uh, one goal in the league. He, he scored uh, once in the Champions League, but yeah, just one league goal. And that has been... I'm not. He's not the. He's not the the problem. But you do wonder how much closer RB Leipzig would be to Bayern Munich if they had a centre forward who scored a lot of goals, uh, rather than one who I think I mean, I insist he is a good footballer, but it hasn't been happening for him. And it's interesting. I say all this because uh, lining up up front for Bayern Leverkusen will very likely be Patrick Schick, who was very good uh, for Leipzig on loan last season. Leipzig couldn't agree a deal with Roma, so they ended up going for Serlot instead. Sheik went to Leverkusen, where he's been altogether more productive than Serlot has been for Leipzig. So it's a sort of battle of the tall strikers, uh, of which one my compatriot, uh, Alexander Serlot, sadly hasn't been very good. But I do think there is a good player there. Uh, He's just currently hiding.
0: This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part?